This is international radio station VLPC-DB from Sydney, Australia with global broadcasting rights. No portions of any of our programs may be reproduced without this station's express permission. Henry Cisneros served as mayor in San Antonio, Texas, from 1981 to 1989. He was only the second Latino mayor elected to a major American city since 1842 with Juan Seguin. A Democrat, Cisneros served as the 10th Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Clinton administration from 1993 to 1997. He was cited for initiating the revitalization of many of the public housing units in the United States and formulating policies that contributed to the United States achieving its highest ever home ownership rates. He also visited many of the nation's largest city where he was very popular. Welcome, Henry met about 20, 25 years ago after the King riots. Uh, both of us working together on the same thing, making better places and better spaces so that all people could enjoy our great democracy. Welcome, Henry. Ed, so, thank you very much for in inviting me and thank you for your prodigious legacy of good work in uh, cities, not just in United States, but in Australia and around the world. You're, you're uh, one of those persons who's made a difference everywhere he's been. Thank you very much, Henry. Kind words from you. And I hope we can work together again soon. I, I look forward to it. So uh, I understand you're now in the infrastructure space. What does that mean? Well, I uh, am chairman of a company, uh, founder and chairman of a company that raises institutional capital pension systems, retirement systems, insurance companies, high net worth individuals, sovereign funds from nations, and deploys it to revitalize the uh, obsolete and deteriorating infrastructure of the United States. We do not operate internationally. We operate within the United States. And our focus is on the transportation system, which means roads, rail, airports, seaports, also what we call smart city initiatives, uh, which is the transformation of the uh, electric grid, uh, things related to lighting, uh, climate change in cities, uh, and a whole range of things where technology is being applied to make cities better places to live. Everything from crime control to uh, addressing water conservation, all kinds of measures where technology is employed today. And then the third target is what we call knowledge and information systems, which means working with universities, schools, uh, data centers, uh, communication strategies, etc. So those three focal points, transportation, smart city, and knowledge and information is where we are focused. So for four years in the last administration, unnamed. 
the Department of Housing and Urban Development was invisible. And I imagine you saw that in the cities and the city infrastructure. What happened during those four years and can we re recover from it? Well, first of all, I was very disappointed because I really thought that uh, President Trump, having been a builder of housing most of his career, his life, his father before him, that he would understand that field. And that would be one of the winners, no matter what else he chose to do, that he would want to build things. But it just didn't happen. I think what we could say in retrospect is that he was distracted. His style distracted him and the country because he would have a press conference to talk about something like infrastructure, and it would end up being a press conference going after some perceived enemy or making some outlandish claim. And he was distracted, and the news media was distracted, and the country was distracted. And we spent four years in a manic, a manic distraction uh, where people would rush home to see the evening news just to see what was the latest craziness, what was the latest weird thing that, that we were pursuing. It was a show. It was a very much a show. And I actually thought that uh, he might be reelected because people had gotten addicted to that form of entertainment. But luckily, they came to their senses and we had a change of administration. Uh, I think we lost a lot of ground. Um, and it's sad because some of it cannot be made up when children lose critical years of education or when uh, the economy uh, is particularly harsh on on one group of people and they lose uh, income or or worse, you know, investments. Uh, it's hard to make up. Uh, but the one fortunate thing is it didn't go on for a second four years because I, I believe if it had the United States would have hit kind of an inflection point where the trajectory begins to be downward. Uh, there's nothing about history that says great nations need to remain great. Leadership nations need to remain in leadership. And the way we were losing leadership in the world, respect in the world, followership in the world, uh, disengaging from entire regions like the Pacific uh, Trade Agreement, um, the United States was losing badly. And the worst of it is that by the end of his four years, Trump had found buttons to push that were really dangerous, headed in the direction, anti-democratic directions, authoritarian, uh, beyond the rule of law, uh, really damaging key institutions like the democratic processes, voting, uh, court cases, etc., and and perhaps most fundamentally, changing the essence of our system of public dialogue, which is adherence to the truth, yes, and to the rational and to but, science, but also changing our destiny, our destiny, and changing our direction. All and I, I would men say this: are created equal. I would say that another four years of that in the United States may not have been able to recover. The, uh, the loss would have been so great that other nations in the world would have been able to, 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 to pick up where our trajectory had left off and we'd be spinning in, in division and, 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 and counterproductive uh, uh, attacks and so forth. So 
luckily, the good news is it ended after four years. Luckily, we have a rational person in office in President Biden. You and, and I he, both know uh, him. Uh, yes, I have a great respect for him. And, and you know, it's an interesting thing I've, I've observed. When he early on in his youth wanted to be president, he probably thought he should be president because he was the smartest guy in the room or the most charming guy in the room or the best politician in the room or the most charismatic guy in the room. Well, it turns out when he did get to be president, it wasn't for any of those reasons. That's right. It was basically because people said he's essentially a decent human being with the ability to make good judgments from his experience. And that's what we got. And that's what we need. So uh, it, it's, it's just one of those instances where the Lord looked down on us and blessed us with uh, kind of the right person at the right time. And uh, that quality of decency really comes through. And, and he's been almost flawless in his decisions here for the first 58 days. This is the 58th day of his presidency. And he's been almost flawless in the way that uh, he has made decisions on every front. And of course, the, the principal priority at the moment is everything we can do to defeat the pandemic. The United States did not acquit itself well uh, on the pandemic. And uh, uh, so his focus was on getting the vaccine out. And yes. we are now very close to the 100 million mark of vaccines since he took office. They've been totally focused on every system, every institution uh, getting in position to uh, do the vaccine. And that's good. Uh, and then other measures that I think are reasonable and fair. And then beyond that, uh, a whole series of other things related to assisting state and local governments, helping families climb out from the economic hole that the pandemic dug. And um, so, so I think the, 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 the public sentiment just in these 58 days is there's a grown-up in charge and we're working together uh, as we haven't in a long time. Yes, and, that, and that's important. I saw some signs um, when I was last in the States just before the pandemic saying, searching for a grown-up. <laughs> well, we, we, we badly needed a grown-up for the last four so years. So now we have a grown-up. And another grown-up taking your old job, Miss Fudge. Mm -hmm. Do you know her? I have talked to her. She was the mayor of a city in Ohio, Warrensville, Ohio, outside of Cleveland. And she um, was in Congress after that, representing a district nearby in suburban Cleveland. And um, she's highly respected in the Congress. She was actually a candidate for several cabinet positions mm -hmm. and ended up with the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and I think she's going to be good. What's the department her has, uh, The department has some serious challenges that are, you know, apart from the usual housing issues, uh, but the uh, aftermath of the pandemic, the fact that so many people were without jobs, had no income, could not have paid rent, resulted in a moratorium on evictions. As that comes off, and it must, because... Uh, landlords cannot continue to house people and, 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 and get no rent. So there will, there will have to be assistance for rent and or alternative housing for people who otherwise will go to homelessness. 
And we already have a homeless problem that is bad enough without putting women and children on the street, which is what would happen uh, if we didn't have an active role there. So that'll be a very important job for her. Uh, there will be others um, beyond homelessness. The, we already had an affordability crisis of people being able to afford housing, virtually unaffordable uh, uh, in, in, in so many cities across the country and in, in Boston and New York and San Francisco and Honolulu and many other places. Uh, so, so that will be an important agenda. Uh, fair housing, because we saw uh, during this period the deep inequality in our country and the difficulty that people who have been marginalized, people of color, uh, have in, in getting into uh, the neighborhoods near where they can work, where the, where the schools are the best. And so fair housing, which is often thought of as an afterthought uh, in housing policy, has moved to the front of the line as, 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 as necessary. We can't have a functioning housing system if we um, uh, have limited access to housing. Right. Yeah. And, and housing is not just housing. It's neighborhood. It's neighborhoods, it's schools, schools, it's the workplace. The truth of the matter is housing, and I think I came to this realization when I was secretary, even more than when I was mayor, housing is the platform from which all of the other social progress we want for people, a good education, a good paying job, good health conditions, stable family environments, all of those things depend upon a basic question. Where are your children going to put their head on a pillow tonight? That's right. Is it going to be a safe and decent place or are they going to be relegated to a homeless shelter or some overcrowded uh, and, and inadequate place? Is that where they can do their homework? Is that where they can, uh, uh, you know, uh, be well and sleep well and rest well? Is that the, the place we want our elderly and, and uh, our families? Uh, housing is absolutely central to every concept of social justice. Let me give you another aspect of housing. A number of um, people in the city business are saying cities are going to be reformed. Jobs are going to move to the neighborhoods. Almost half of the people who are working online will continue to work online. Mm -hmm. It's better for the neighborhood. It's better for the family. It's better for the economic infrastructure of the firm. That means neighborhoods have to be better places to work. How do we do that? Well, I think it's a good point. I, I do believe that the, um, uh, the pandemic changed a lot and taught us that, a lot, that people can work from home. People can work online. There are certain aspects of cities that are absolutely uh, changed like the hospitality industry, the number of hotels that are empty, the convention centers that are empty, because who wants to go to a 20,000 person convention nowadays uh, and fly on airplanes to get there and, and expose themselves to the pandemic? And I don't know how long this is going to go. So there are some fundamental earth shaking changes occurring in America's and the country and the world's cities. On the other hand, there's some evidence that, 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 that a lot of positive things are happening in cities. People are living in 
in neighborhoods and depending on each other more. And, uh, and, and, and you, there's still a, a movement of young people to these settings where ideas can be exchanged. Yeah. It, it, it may be different than the, than the 25 story skyscraper downtown and everybody jammed up into 25 floors, but more like you say, some neighborhood facilities, some neighborhood offices, uh, some some gathering places, homes. Um, but I think that uh, the institution that we call cities in modern civilization are, uh, are going to continue to be important and strong. Uh, as you know, for the first time in the history of humanity, of mankind, more people now live in cities than live in rural areas. That's, that's right. That's the first time. And that's, that's not going to turn back. And that's not going to turn back. And um, uh, our population centers, our economic centers. I mean, there's many, many cities in the world where uh, the, 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 their economies are essentially metropolitan economies. That's, that's where right. the ideas ferment. That's where the, the con- conversations occur that, cre- that, 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 that spur creativity. Uh, those are not just words. Those are real processes. Those, that's the way human beings inter- inter- interact today in our modern economy of, of new media and, and biosciences and telecommunications and business services, etc. Those, are, those, are, those require human contact. How do and, we- uh, so, so the agglomerative forces, yeah. this, the pulling together forces are real. How do we and, make... You know, a lot of our neighborhoods, the little strips have fallen apart. As downtown Boston proved, I know with my own daughter's neighborhood, her strips started falling apart. Mm -hmm. Is there some room now for those strips to house some workspaces? Yeah. And for your infrastructure investments to be about investing in place Mm -hmm. over movement. Yes, I think that's true. I think I think I think uh, that's a very good thought. I mean, that's a good way to to say it. But I think we're going to see, for example, regional shopping centers transformed into a mixture of senior housing mm-hmm. with recreational space, with um, uh, 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 interesting food that's not chain uh, stores, but uh, small indigenous uh, creators of food mm-hmm. uh, and, and because there is no need for the regional shopping center when Amazon is delivering every product imaginable to your house. Right? But something like a thousand shopping centers closed in the U S last year. There's no question. Uh, yeah, there's many, a, many a regional shopping center that is really on its last legs. And that that's a fundamental change that we're witnessing. Um, but there's other industries as well that that you know uh, that 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 we, we're seeing just the the role of the role of hospitality of hotels and convention centers in cities has been very very important to a lot of American cities. Certainly, uh, San Antonio. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Well, San Antonio, New Orleans, Charleston, Miami, yeah. Las Vegas, San Francisco, New York, you name it. Yeah, <laughs> they were. They were competing for who could build the largest convention center. And we were in that competition here in Sydney. 
we yeah. rebuilt our convention center when you were last here because yeah. we couldn't compete. Yeah. So, so, um, and we'll see how that sorts out. But, but I think urban designers, urban planners, urban advocates need to be very attentive to, uh, to these trends, see how they sort out. What are some of your guesses? Well, uh, as I said, I think cities are going to continue to be important in the world economy. Uh, you know, over the, over the years, I've, I've, I've sort of gleaned insights from people like you who acknowledge that, you know, world trade is not really between countries. We account for it as countries. Korea's trading with the United States. India's trading with Australia. But it's not countries. No. It's metros. Metros. It's metros. It's Delhi and Melbourne. It's Seoul and Los Angeles. And you see it in the contrails of the airplanes connecting them. You see it in the, the ships arriving in ports. You see it in the, uh, the, 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 the visitors. You see it in the communications. You see it in the soft power new media mm -hmm. uh, entertainment venues. Um, and so I, I think the way the world economy has gravitated, the subject to which it's gravitated, uh, urban places are going to be very important. They'll, they'll still be the most important dynamics of, of the world economy. Now, within that, um, it'll be new industries, completely new industries. Um, it'll be medical centers that are important. It'll be higher education that's important. It'll be creative space that's important. Uh, I, you know, we'll, 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 we'll learn from this pandemic. And by the way, it won't be the last because um, we've uncovered uh, primitive parts of our topography that are generating viruses that, 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 that are now finding their way yeah. to humankind. And so it won't be the last. Oh, it won't. But uh, hopefully we have learned something from this about immediate governmental responses in social distancing, in vaccines, et cetera. And, and we'll beat the next one uh, just like this. But um, unfortunately on this one, uh, the, the, the politics uh, became so divisive that things like wearing masks became a political issue in the United States. And so you were defining yourself if you were wearing a mask as somehow, you know, uh, against the against Trump or something. Uh, and, and I think a lot we paid we paid for that. Uh, so so we're going to get beyond that. It's some things you said, I've said in some of my books that the new city is going to be a different kind of city. My latest book says technology will create techno hubs in these mm -hmm. metro areas that mm -hmm. relate to one another. People live locally first, not globally first. How would a new infrastructure bill that Biden's championing, yeah. Republicans first championed it, or was it Clinton? I forget which. Well, there are many presidents have championed president, infrastructure. But we've never gotten one through. Correct. No, now I think we have I a just, new target, I would think. Yeah. Ed, I just finished a study with the Rice University Kinder Institute 
in which we, for the first time, polled, actually asked the 100 largest cities and the 100 largest metros and asked the leaders there, what are your highest infrastructure priorities? Immediate. Secondly, how did they change during the pandemic? And thirdly, if you're looking at the long-term future and what you really need to grow and develop, what, what do you need? And the answers were very interesting. Transportation still continues to be important because we don't have well-functioning mass transit in many of our nation's cities. So that was one interesting thing. Another was the pandemic did bring to the fore things like the need for, well, good coverage in broadband. Yeah. Uh, so that we could do online education and not uh, disadvantage neighborhoods that didn't have it, so that we could do things like telemedicine and not fill up the hospitals because we could have diagnosed and treated people with somewhat remote uh, uh, technology. So that was an interesting point. Water strategies continue to be important because we have parts of the United States uh, that will be reeling from climate change, and for them it will mean Heat and drought. And so we need water supplies in those places. And fire. And fires, yeah, absolutely. And then in other parts of the country, the problem is too much water because uh, rising sea levels will inundate certain cities and others will be blasted by uh, more violent storms, hurricanes and inland storms. So uh, infrastructure will have to deal with all of those questions. But we also need... Uh, an infrastructure that is increased. I mean, traditionally infrastructure has been thought of as transportation, energy, communications, mm-hmm. um, hard stuff, uh, the hard bridges, ports, Rigid. Uh, airports, yeah. etc. But increasingly there is a category of infrastructure called social infrastructure that speaks to housing, speaks to medical facilities, speaks to, public spaces, everything from parks to public buildings and recreational facilities and others. So I think that the post-pandemic infrastructure will have a different tenor to it, a different tone to it than what we might have seen before. All right. Now, those big hotels that many cities are still rebuilding are not filling up. Here Sydney, the visitors are from Asia, or were. We don't anticipate more than half of those coming back. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not the low-cost trip. What do we do with these big hotels? Well, already we're seeing some of them converted to, for example, housing. Mm -hmm. Already we're seeing uh, apartment builders uh, take over hotel properties and convert them into housing. This is not a this is not the answer to your question, but it's interesting to me that in San Antonio, the homeless advocates were able to persuade the city to rent empty hotels and put homeless people in them during the pandemic so they wouldn't be on the street exposed to the pandemic. And the result in those hotels was zero incidence of the coronavirus. Wow. None, none zero because they had distancing because they had their own space to wash and clean and in some cases you know cook in in a suite 
uh, or at least warm things, warm food, have food delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there are answers of that nature. We need in this country a lot of housing for the senior population. We have an aging tsunami, something like uh, the, the, the population over 65 will over the next 20 years double and the population over 85 will triple. Why? Because the baby boomers mm-hmm. who were born between 1946 and 1964 have now reached 65 years of age. And in 20 years, they will be the 85 year olds. And they're in good health. Well, lots of them are in good health and they're gonna live into their nineties. So we, we, we have a problem in America for people who are presently living in the McMansion in the suburbs, now that their children have left, they have no use for that size of property. It's actually a disadvantage to try to maintain it when you're in your 70s and 80s. So we need a different kind of housing. Some of this, some of the facilities we're talking about can be transformed. Yeah, so that's a great then, idea. So there's, there's, there's ideas out there. Yeah, I, I see that in my own neighborhood. Yeah. I live in one in those neighborhoods it has two people and a seven bedroom house exactly and 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 they don't even want to be there they don't want to go upstairs right exactly people exactly. are playing tennis with a converting their dining rooms into bedrooms yeah, yeah. because going upstairs is just too much now they're sure. playing tennis so they can move but walking up right. that two flights of stairs is hard it's just too much yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what else do you see that's coming? Well, Ed, I think the, 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 the big challenges uh, revolve around <clears throat> making room and making way for the younger generation. Mm. The boomers have been on the stage for a long time. And we have the a Congress shows that we had the uh, the, you know, the uh, Gen Xers after us and then. And then the millennials coming along. And uh, I think as a society, we, we have underestimated the changes that we'll have to make in workplace and other things to make way for the next generation. And the incident, which I'm sure was a, a, a followed in Australia with uh, Meghan Markle and the Crown uh, last week, uh, is an example of... Uh, a traditional institution not comprehending, not even understanding the kind of change that the younger generation wants and frankly will demand. Uh, So I think one of the big societal challenges is that. And then it is also, of course, the movement of people of color into the mainstream of major societies. And we've seen in the United States just how uncomfortable that transition is. Uh, Latinos, I happen to be of Hispanic heritage, Mexican heritage in the United States, and we're the fastest growing population in America by far. By far. Uh, about half of the growth of population in the United States will be Hispanic. That's just the Hispanic population. Then there are Asians, and then there are African Americans, and then there are other populations that will make a country that has, uh, who's, who's, Institutions have been predominantly white uh, have to uh, uh, understand the reality of inclusion, of change, 
And that's not easy as we're seeing, as we're seeing. So we're, we're managing a lot of change at the same time. I hope we can do it for the good of mankind. I, I, I think we can, you know, we, 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 we've moved forward as, as, as a human race in fits and starts. We take two steps forward, then one backward, and then one step forward and then a step and a half backward in times of horrible setbacks like World War II and the, and the Holocaust. Uh, but the, 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 the arc of history is in the direction of, of progress and fairness and inclusion and change as Dr. King taught us. And uh, I am uh, hopeful that we'll learn lessons and, 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 and move forward. All right, last issue. Will the United States be number one in the issues you just mentioned? We were number one not because we've beaten the challenges, but we were working on it. Yeah. The rest of the world look at, on social justice, we were working on it. On democracy, I, th- I think, I think, I think, we're I think on. The, the United Can we States, be number one again? The United States will be number one on those questions. Will be, be will we be number one economically? Will be will we be number one militarily? Will we be number one in the standing in the world? I don't know. The Chinese are very strong and have a lot of things working for them, but they still have some of these questions, these human questions to wrestle with, like democracy and like transparency and like inclusion and like kind of respect at the, at, at the, at the level of human dignity. Uh, and so they've got tough challenges ahead on, the, on that score. As a result, I think, yes, we will still be number one on those questions and we will still be in position to nurture those values around the world thanks to relationships with like-minded countries like Australia, like Canada, like the Japanese, like the Europeans. Though the ideas that we have worked with and worked on and need to continue to work on are truth about human nature. And therefore I think we will we will we we will I, I, I believe our best days are still ahead. Because in previous eras, when we thought we were operating at full tilt, we still had a percentage of our population that was left in the dark, that was uh, marginalized, that was whose potential was not tapped. And I think when we do, when we do break that code, then we're dealing with a mathematics of two plus two equals five. And on that note, you and I will still be working on it. <laughs> Thank you, Henry. We'll still no, be working on it, and you'll still be ahead of the rest of us. <laughs> At least I hope I'm Gary in the game. Glaze, Glaze, Take care. Hey, pal. Was a Great fire, to talk to you. Associate Bye. professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, where he was a leader in transportation and transportation studies as well as urban development. Gary has had a long history in both the private and public sector in planning, urban design, urban development, and transport. He is now retired, but remains active in consulting and promoting his ideas on what makes cities great. Gary Glazebrook, we've known one another for about a decade, right? 
You're okay, a professor yeah. at the University of, of Technology in Sydney and transportation expert. Uh, what are you doing now? I'm basically retired these days. Ed. I still do a bit of lecturing here and there, and I'm, I've started up a, uh, an attempt to get high-speed rail back on the agenda in Australia um, and linking it, this might come up later on, linking it to the issue of uh, a decentralisation strategy um, because I think there's the real possibility of changing the way we've organised ourselves in this particular country here where, as you know, we're highly urbanised in a few capital cities. So I'm working on that. Um, but basically I'm, I'm retired, which is a good place to be. Boy, that's, um, that's great. And I'm, I hope to join you at some point uh, in that. Um, but right now, Gary, uh, you have been uh, a person of significant insights about cities and how they're organized and what's happening and what might happen to them. How has COVID hit cities? What are some of the major changes? Well, there are a couple of, there are a couple of things. So I think changes within cities um, in terms of lifestyles, travel behaviour, uh, demand for office space, the sort of housing that people want to live in, all that kind of thing. Um, and then I think there are changes between cities or between cities and, and regions in terms of people's residential uh, choices, but also... Do you think those choices are permanent or temporary? They just want to get away from the lockdowns. Yeah, I think some of it will be permanent. Um, I was looking at the ABS uh, Bureau of Stats figures uh, the other day, and I think in the last year to March, there were 46,000 people that moved out of Sydney or moved out of Melbourne to the regions uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. So that's a huge number. Uh, that's kind of a reverse migration flow we, we've had for decades. We've had people moving What was the out. number again? 46,000 people. 46,000, that's a big number, yeah. It's a big number. Uh, that's a whole years. city. That's out of, yeah, out of Sydney and out of Melbourne, uh, which are our two biggest cities, as you know, and, and that's the reversal of decades of the reverse migration where people have been coming to Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney and Melbourne in particular have been dominating the whole population growth scenario in Australia, and that's part of this global cities phenomenon we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, Melbourne, as you know, has been winning the you know, world's most livable city uh, stakes um, in comparison to many other cities around the world. It's now coming about third on the typical sort of uh, measures that people make. Sydney usually comes in a bit below Melbourne, but still, again, one of the world's most livable cities. So we're sort of lucky in Australia. We have these great, great cities to live in, or they're considered to be great cities, but there's an enormous problem of housing affordability. We have some of the least affordable housing in the world, actually, in Australia, much, much less affordable than, say, in the US or in Europe even. Um, so uh, as far as COVID's concerned, I think it's just thrown everything up in the air. And, uh, of course, different countries have had different experiences. In, in Australia, we've had very low death rate, um, very low number of people with the virus, but equally we've got the world's, <laughs> the world's laggard in terms of vaccination at the moment and we've got in the middle of lockdowns in Sydney and, and there's a new one just started in Melbourne, there's one in Brisbane going on as well. So we've got half the country in, in lockdown, whereas in much of the rest of the world where they've actually succeeded in getting vaccination rates up to sort of 60%, 70% of the adult population, 
we're sitting on about 16% in Australia. So um, the rest of the world is opening up and we're sort of way behind. So there are different things happening around the world in different cities and in different places. Um, but I think one of the things that COVID has done is change the way people look at work um, and the way they look at how they utilise their homes. So I did some research in Australia and found that to much my surprise really that over half the workforce are either managers uh, or professionals or clerical workers or people who actually can work online. Half the workforce for the entire nation? Yep, more than half the workforce. Now, Now, what accounts for that? Well, we're a tertiary sector economy. We have highly efficient agriculture that employs almost nobody. We have very little manufacturing. Uh, And I like to say in Australia we do two things. We dig up rocks and we make great uh, coffee. Um, We sit around drinking uh, cafe lattes and flat whites and and uh, drinking, sipping Chardonnay. So Australia that sounds is like Monte, Monte Carlo, not like a big nation. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not like Germany and Japan, where we, you know we don't have a huge manufacturing sector, and uh, and we're a tertiary, you know, a tertiary sector economy. Uh, now, to some economy. extent, uh, the lower end of that tertiary sector can be really hurt by this. The guys make the coffee. Uh, if you're working well, from home. The guys that make the coffee, they, they, it's amazing how, yeah, sure, at the moment cafes are doing, doing it tough, cafes and restaurants. Um, but interestingly, every time the lockdowns end, they do really well. Down here in the Southern Highlands, we're only about an hour and a half out of Sydney. Um, we get swamped by people coming down from Sydney whenever they can um, out of Sydney and come down here. We have, we have more cafes per head of population in the Southern Highlands, I think, than anywhere in the world, just about except Byron Bay. Um, so, you know, Australia is known for its coffee coffee and its cafe sort of culture. Um, it used to be pubs in the old days. We went back 30 or 40 years. Nowadays, everyone just goes to the cafe. So, um, you know, when, when COVID is not restricting people's uh, socialising, um, in actual fact, people are having a pretty good time out of out of uh, yeah, the lifestyle can be pretty good. In fact, everybody in Australia pretty much has had to stop travelling overseas and because we're such huge international travellers and people spend so much money on flying around the world and going on cruises and things, uh, all of that has stopped for the last 18 months and as a result of that, um, there's all this money to spend. People have been saving money and spending it on housing. So there are a whole range of changes that have happened um, to the economy, um, to lifestyles, even to things like settlement patterns. How much of this is going to be permanent is, is really the big question. Tell me um, this pattern. Uh, clearly, uh, other things may push this. For example, the 40-hour week is dying, and the four-day week is probably going to come off the other side of this. I would be very surprised if anyone's going to go to work five days a week in the future. Well, that's right. And it, but that doesn't mean that they won't be working. And, and, I mean, no, no, the they'll just be working from a different location. They'll be working from a different location. That's right. As far as people who are in the sort of occupations, as I mentioned, over half the labour force in Australia um, can do stuff online, if you like, um, 
So uh, for those people, uh, a lot of companies are now saying, look, we really do want you to come back to work, but probably only three days a week, maybe four days a week. Some will be more flexible, you know, companies like Atlassian and so on, uh, it's one of our high-tech companies here in Australia, um, have got a policy of saying, well, look, we don't care where you work from, you can be overseas, it's, it's an international company. Um, you can be working from your home, you can come into the office, you can work from a cafe, do whatever you want. Um, but if you do come into the office, you'll be operating on the same platforms and the same communications infrastructure as if you're working from home. So they're not forcing people to come into the office, despite the fact they're just actually in the process of going to build one of the world's newest high-tech office blocks right in the heart of Sydney. So I think a lot of people have decided that they really don't want to go to work five days a week. They don't want to do the five-day-a-week commute. And uh, as long as the companies and the employers agree to that, I think that will produce some big changes in travel patterns in particular. Yeah. I work in a law firm for what is called a full week, uh, but I only go there two days a week. Mm, And uh, the firm is about to relocate. We have about 25 people and they're locating space for about 12. There'll be no conference room anymore. Mm -hmm. We'll share a conference room on the same floor with somebody else. Uh, The big library with all the books in it, like you see behind me, is something really of the past because we have a staff person who sends us electronic library stuff almost daily. Um, I have never, since leaving law school, looked in a law book. Hmm. What for? I couldn't get the most recent case from a law book, so why look in one? Exactly. They make nice shelving, though. The, the real question is here, up until maybe five years ago, uh, we had Richard Florida and, and we had the kind of theory that face-to-face communication, if you go back 25, 30 years ago, we had people like Bill Mitchell with his City of Bits writing that the technology of, for uh, video conferencing and so forth would make cities redundant. So there were quite a lot of people writing back in the 1990s or thereabouts when the internet was really you know, getting into action, that, um, look, cities were a thing of the past. People would go and live in rural, you know, he was thinking in terms of the United States, um, attractive rural areas, could be in Colorado, could be in, you know, in California. Why and that did you- happen. And it happened to, to a significant extent, although what actually happened was the cities like Denver and, and Salt Lake City and, and Phoenix and so forth, became very, very fast-growing cities. So, yes. yes, some people did, in fact, live in the mountains, you know, in a, in a ski village sort of deal. But um, in actual fact, America was urbanising or re-urbanising again. Uh, and, and, in fact, the world, is that's what's happened around the world. London didn't die. Uh, Paris didn't die. Tokyo didn't die. Sydney and Melbourne have boomed. Um, so we've had 30 years now of global cities doing extremely well, despite all this technology, which we've actually had via conferencing for 30, 40 years now. So, um, so it's less sticky now. That, that core isn't as sticky as it used to be, huh? Well, that's right. So I think that we're now going to enter a new phase, you know. I think it's taken that long for people to accept. It really was COVID 
forcing people to do video conferencing. We've had it all. We've had it there. But people used to jump on planes and fly from Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney for a, for a meeting, you know, fly a thousand kilometres, go to, go to a meeting and fly a thousand kilometres home again. That, that was the sort of way in which business was done in Australia and it's the way it's been done in America and Europe. Uh, uh, we had all these cheap flights and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it was believed that you had to have face-to-face -face contact uh, to really make things creative, to get the creative city effect. Um, now, I, you know, it, it now is a very interesting question about whether that is actually still true or whether people actually have now gotten used to this concept of Zooming and all the rest of it. And maybe, yes, we will have to have face-to-face -face contact, but maybe much less frequently. Maybe well, we don't. What, if you're just making transactions, you don't need it frequently. But if you're doing some work that may require creative components, two or three of you face-to-face, -face, I found is far better than online. Well, absolutely. And so the question is, how, do, how, do, how does work adapt to all of that? How do people adapt to all of that? How do organisations adapt to it? And what does that mean for our cities, where we live, where we work, etc.? So, so what, think, how do you surmise? I think we will not go back to what we were before, the five-day-a-week commute. I think you're right. I think a lot of people will do spend some part of the time working from home. Uh, maybe it's a day a week, maybe it's two days a week, maybe it's three weeks a month, whatever, depending on the type of work you do. Um, so that means that the amount of commuting within cities will probably decline. Mm -hmm. But you know what will happen? I think right. people will then decide, like I, like I know a lot of people have decided down here, that as long as you're close enough to a big city, uh, maybe an hour and a half away, uh, you can get there when you need to, if you need to. And yes, so that decision has been made uh, because as long as you go, you, know, you only go to the opera once a week anyway, at the most, yeah. Yeah. or to the big show or the big footy match, you don't have to be there all the time. You don't have to be there all the time. And if you think about it, the trouble with big cities has always been housing costs and congestion, and that's always been... It's always been there and it will always be there. And for people who want to have something of a rural lifestyle or to you know, breathe the fresh air or have a bit more space or have an environment for their kids to grow up in, so long as their kids can then get to you know, a good university and so long as they can get good health care when they're older, you don't have to be in a capital city or in a major city. You can be in a smaller town or a smaller city or even a village. Um, this is the advantage that a lot of countries in Europe have long had because their settlement pattern is not just dominated by a couple of big cities. There are lots and lots and lots of medium-sized cities all over the place in countries like Germany and so forth. But so, what's helped that very much is they have these great train programs. In the Netherlands, you can live on one side of the country and have your job on the other. Most of exactly. the universities in Paris have their faculty in Nice and all over the place. They don't live in Paris. Exactly, exactly. So, so I think it does, it'll depend on the person and the sort of job they do. And some people are just urban. But I think it depends on the transport. Right. I mean, you can be 20 minutes away if you're in Tokyo and mm. 100 kilometres. 
you know? Yeah. That yeah. makes a huge difference. Well, that's it. So high-speed rail, of course, is, is a game-changer, I think, for some countries like Australia and the US, which haven't really had it. Um, but Japan has had it for a long while. Europe has had it for a long while. China's now got it. Um, we're way behind on that, on that score. So uh, our settlement patterns in America and Australia, we're big continental-sized countries, um, we've been based our transport for the last 60, 70 years on flying and driving. Uh, we haven't had that intermediate high-speed ground transport mode that they've now had in for, you know, 30 years or so in Europe and Japan and Korea and so on. So I think there might be some big changes coming in settlement patterns in countries like the US and Australia and Canada. Will it be um, driven by the worker or by the firm? Well, I think it'll be a combination. It'll need, it'll need three things. It'll need the individuals, the companies or the employers and governments. Governments will need to provide the infrastructure. Um, I think the property development industry will love it. They will, they will, in fact, find ways to make money out of whether it's new office blocks or new housing or some sort of changes in the way people have their house. Like everybody will want to have somewhere where you can work from home. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people will, will want the sort of house that you've got enough space to get away from your bedroom. And uh, I spent 15 years working from home in Sydney in the inner suburbs and actually um, had the world's shortest commute. I think it was about one metre from my bed to my desk. <laughs> um, and that's not ideal. You don't really want to work out of your bedroom, you know what I mean? You really want to have at least another spare room somewhere in the house, uh, a comfortable room that you can work from. But haven't we been going in that direction for some time because there were those uh, big game rooms at one point and then we went to the, uh, the big television room you know the big television screen and people i think have taken those screens down and just put in offices well i think you know australia's got now the biggest houses in the world i think they're bigger even in the us um and and that's true of some people but we've now got a whole generation of people who can't afford to own their own home and are living in tiny apartments and in yes, fact that's true. we've got a, a sort of a two type of uh, you know a double housing System. Some people crowded, much more crowded than they used to be, and other people much less crowded than they used to be. You well, know, those people who can't afford houses, uh, they're usually two-job people, and moving out right. to the countryside with two jobs and two children is a difficult choice. Oh, that's right. And so depending on your stage in the life cycle, your income, and I think your own preferences. I mean, I think there are some people who think that being in the country is an absolute death. You know, nothing ever happens there. It's not an exciting place to be. But for other people, they really don't really want to be in the city, to be honest. You know? Yeah, that's true. But I want to go back to my premise here. Housing prices are high in the city. Apartments are small. You can't leave that small apartment and go out in the country and get a larger house because the two-income family requires you to live close. Now, there's a problem, and that's true in the days where everybody used to commute all the time, five days a week. But what I've discovered living out of Sydney now, down here, an hour and a half out of Sydney, an awful lot of people here commute to Sydney already two or three days a week. They might stay with friends. Um, they have their house down here. Uh, they might go to university in Wollongong or they might go to university in Sydney. Um, 
there are a lot of flexible arrangements. I'm, I've been surprised at how, how flexibly people's lifestyles are. Mm. Um, so a person, my, my wife could go to work on Mondays and Tuesdays, and I go to work on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and the children don't even know us. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I mean, if you had a little bit of tear, we had one in New York, we lived on the island, we had a little apartment in the city, because when the evening functions, you couldn't get back. So we had a little apartment about as big as my office here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a cook stove and toilet and so forth and a little kitchenette. Um, and that was enough for the weekend. Yeah. And sometimes I stayed there two or three days because there's a big function going on in the city. When the UN opens, you can't get back in the city. Mm. Exactly. And, and, so for pe some people will have that flexibility. Some people have got the income to keep a country, a state, and an apartment in the city. Um, that's more than English, isn't it? The, the that's London a, that's style? A that's a traditional lifestyle for many of the higher-income people in, in London, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and they go back on the weekends for their country, estate, and then they come into the city and, and stay in a little apartment. So, look, the, this has been going on for a long time, but I think what COVID has done is make people realise that actually it is possible to do a lot of work online. A surprising amount of work can be done online. Um, but having said that, I know a lot of people who are really over Zoom, to be honest. You know, I'm over Zoom. They spend so many hours a day on the screen, they're just sick of it. So, Me too. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how it all, all pans out. But uh, for... Me now, I can interview somebody in Brazil, and I'd never yep. think of that before because Zoom is so good. Uh, but when you're working online, it doesn't seem the same as if you're doing like I'm doing. It's a hobby. But I, in the media world, this would be work, and mm. I might get sick of it. Yeah, exactly. So the question is, you know, people still crave – you know, physical proximity and contact, I think. Um, I still think that's going to be, that'll come back when, when as soon as people can get over this COVID thing, we get everybody gets vaccinated or nearly everybody gets vaccinated. Um, so I think the city will come back. I think, but companies will have to make it much more attractive to come into the office. Mm -hmm. We had got to the stage in Sydney, not quite like Tokyo where, you know, people are occupying two square metres of space in the, in the office jammed in. But, you know, a lot of these law firms, the partners might have a very big office on the top floor, but the, uh, the solicitors downstairs are crammed in like, uh, like rats in a cage, you know, to be honest. Um, we had got to the point where office space was so expensive that these companies were, in fact, jamming people in and pretty awful working conditions in actual fact, a little bit sort of... Dickensian, really. Um, I think companies will find that a lot of younger people are not going to tolerate that anymore, that there'll have to be a lot of attractive features about going to the office. There'll have to be gymnasiums, there'll have to be coffee shops, there'll have to be entertainment or, you know, some other things to get you to go to the office. Otherwise, people say, no, thanks, I'll work from home. And if, if employers say, well, if you want to work in this company, you'll have to come into the office five days a week, 
I think a lot of people, the people with skills will just say, well, goodbye, you know. This is international radio station VLPC-DB from Sydney, Australia with global broadcasting rights. No portions of any of our programs may be reproduced without this station's express permission.